0: This fall continues by God's grace through the word of the Lord spoken to by his spirit through his servant Isaiah to his covenant people. We continue to see God's people in his place under his rule and blessing who are called to him, called to him in circumstances. To be the display of his glory to the watching world, that the world may know the God who saves, the God who saves a people unto himself, even like these, and even a people like they, that they would have eyes to see and ears to hear. And it's Israel's situation and condition. That's what we've continued to see. That's what we've continued to follow in these recent chapters. Um, the resistance of their heart, the resistance of their mind um, to follow God. They're quick to trust, but they're quick to trust in the nations. They're quick to reject God's plan of restoration. Most recently, what they heard in Cyrus in God's providing Cyrus for them. And so a word of comfort is what has been spoken, but that's not what they heard what was spoken was that they will continue to be his people, that his love is not like the love they have for him, which is failing, which is fickle, which is here and there looking for quick fixes, turning to the next best thing, but that he is pledged to be their God and he continues to be their God, that his steadfast love, his said, continues to be set on them. It doesn't leave them It doesn't depart from them. His power is at work in His people for His purpose. So, what does that mean? What does that mean when God's providing in a way for His people that they don't expect and they don't want? What does that mean? What does it mean when God's people have standards? We have criteria, we have expectations, we have hopes. We think we know what God should do for us. What does it mean when he doesn't measure up? What does it mean when, for God's people, he does the opposite of what we think we need or what we want? And so what is it even in us, the itch itch that brings us um, to this place of saying, well, right now... I know, I know, I have eyes to see. I know when I'm encountering God's goodness. I know when I'm experiencing His grace. I know when I'm experiencing something. And it might be uh, that we see things going smoothly. We have expectations. um, Smooth transitions, hitting our goals, being in stride. Uh, People show up where they're supposed to be. Things get turned in. We have, we have this, this chart, um, you know, the mental to-do list. We can check it off, and we see that things are lining up, falling in place. Uh, maybe it's um, feeling God's loving us right now is a kind word from a friend, a relationship that's being restored. Is that what makes your heart say, I know God's goodness right now because this. Someone filled a need in a place where you've been struggling. A burden was lightened. Something was lifted. Um, that was God's goodness. Maybe it's you got a phone call. A phone call you were waiting for. A friend you've been longing to hear from. I find that uh, the pattern of my own heart, when I'm most confident to name what I think and what I see as God's goodness, is when that things are going smoothly, um, without a hiccup, without the bumps, when um, my kids are responding to my affection, when I check things off my list, when everything shows up in the right place at the right time and there's no gaps, then I say, thanks God, this is good. And that's, that's, the, that's the expression of our culture. We throw hashtag blessed, we got the moment, we put the stamp on it, you were there. Thanks God, you knew just what I needed and you are, you really showed yourself that you are a good God. And so we talk about this, uh, experiencing, encountering God's goodness. We name this, but we're not actually naming God's goodness. Um, What we're naming when we do this is favorable situations, positive outcomes, desirable circumstances, things that are measured according to our standards. That's what we're naming. And the problem with our lens of God's goodness is that... um, We put our own tent to it. We put our own rubric to it. We're reading, we're changing, we're shifting circumstances, and we read, God was good to me today, or why wasn't God good to me today? And his word challenges that in our hearts, that his goodness towards us, it's not rising and falling. It's not um, abounding at times and droughting at times. His word is very, very clear that his goodness is steadfast, that his love is unceasing, that his mercies, they have no end. Paul writes in Corinthians that he is the father of mercies. He is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions, comforts us for the sake of comforting others. Comforts us so that we know that we ourselves are comforted by God. And he speaks this, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, the sufferings of his goodness, what? So through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, that's God's goodness. It is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure. Patiently enduring, that doesn't sound good. The same sufferings that we suffer, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. We think of the goodness as the thing that comes after, not the thing during, not the sustaining being gripped onto, held onto in the midst of affliction. we could join with Paul's voice and proclaim with him that, that which was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And there's a shift of goodness. There's a shift of goodness that goes away from reading, is this easy or is this hard? Is this favorable or unfavorable? Will I get the outcome or is this a hard time? God is speaking to his people um, that regardless of the season, if it's a flood, if it's rain in just the right amounts, or if it's drought, that God's goodness is there. God is speaking here by his spirit to his people through a servant Isaiah that they would know regardless of the season, his peace for them is like a river. He to them is water in the wilderness, even in the place where it comes from the rock. That as they journey, when they journey with him, there are springs of water that will guide them. But God's people Israel, they have no ears to hear his words of comfort because they think they know what his goodness should look like. Because they think the goodness of now should happen. They don't break into songs of hope when he speaks to them. They don't celebrate. They don't gather. Because they have no categories for understanding how can their God be their covenantal God bound to them yet allow an even purpose for them to endure and be shaped by a season of refining suffering. How can God certainly be good? Those two things couldn't go together in their mind. That God would just, even though he would be just in abandoning them and casting them off as a people because of their unbelief and unfaithfulness towards him but according to his character, his person and promise he's continued to bear with them why is that not comforting to them the cry that we'll read in Isaiah is um, he is forsaken that's Israel's cry towards God that he has abandoned and he speaks where you go, I will go God rather is saying, I will restore you from captivity. I will rid your land of possessors. I will pour the nations into you as blessing. But his words to them, they're only heard as words. Um, They're only talk. But we're reminded that when God speaks, he doesn't speak in in mere words, Um, not in empty speech, empty talk, things that don't hold power. There's been a lot of conversation about language lately and what's words and what's action. Let's see some action behind the words. When God speaks, his, his words are words spoken of power. His words spoken are promise. They're certain. They're definite. They're worthy of faith and substance. They're worthy of a joyful response because he's the God who speaks by his character, his covenantal triune commitment of all of who he is to guard and keep his people in season and out of season. He never speaks a word too many and he never speaks a word too few. So hear and listen to the word of the Lord given by his spirit through his servant Isaiah to his people Israel to Jacob even to us this very day. Isaiah 49:13 through 26. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather, they come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places... In your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will say, will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me, make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who, wait on, those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you." And I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One, O Jacob. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that as you've continued um, throughout history... Out um, land and um, place and time to provide by your Spirit for your people that your church gathered today would hear from you, uh, Lord, through your Spirit, through your Word, um, through that which you set apart, that we would be taught by you. We pray that you would make in us something new of you, um, that would bring about a display of your glory. That you would align our hearts and minds with your purposes. Um, that you would correct, which is out of step, Lord, that you would grant us joy that's foreign and not ours, but of you, because we have seen and know the way that you love your people. Father, we ask that you would speak now in this time. We ask in Jesus. Amen. What is it that we're doubting? What is it that Israel is doubting? When they have heard that God has spoken to them, when it's been clear, what is it that they're doubting? I thought it was um, notable that Brad mentioned doubt earlier. I had written down doubt before. But it's one of these things we ask, what is it that we're doubting? Do we doubt his person, that he's really there, Um, that he's... Really, the triune God of all creation, who draws near to a people, is that is that um, the whole we can't see him, so we're not sure if he's there thing? Um, did we imagine in great mass this identity of God that can't really be real? So, the did we doubt that he's a figment, um, this figment of imagination, thousands of times over, millions of times over? Is that what we've doubted that he's really there? Have we misperceived? The this, this summation of God's revealing of himself. Have we doubted his character? Is he a God who has shown himself to be trustworthy? Has he shown himself as he really is? Is he misleading? Is this one big magician's trick? Is he trying to bring us down a false trail where he's got a booby trap? Ha! Gotcha! Thought you could trust me. Is that what God's doing? Do we doubt his promise? Is he really a God who could rescue? Is he really a God who could redeem? Is he really a God who could save? Have we misheard his promise? Have we misunderstood his promise? I think these are the foundational issues that are at work in the hearts and minds of Israel as they're hearing him. And I think these are the heart issues and mind issues of us as a people. Um, is, he, is he really who he says he is? Is his character really what it says? Is his promise, is this real stuff? Is this too good to be true or did we misunderstood? We misunderstood his ways. The vast majority of you, um, even Joe mentioned he said, this Joe, he said, I met your wife today, Rhoda. Um, and many of you know her as Rhoda, but she hasn't always been known as Rhoda. Um, there was a day and time when she was known as Katie, and not just as Katie, but Katie Walden. Um, so that's how she was known. All the, all the people that she grew up with, they didn't know her as Rhoda, or even now as Rhoda Walker, but as Katie Walden. Um, and that's important because I'm going to tell you a story about her in the past, not about right now. So you don't lose connection. We're talking about Rhoda, but she's Katie Walden. So Katie Walden at one point in time uh, was a high school student at St. John Lutheran School in Ocala, Florida. And during her senior year, as maybe some of you did, um, she did this, you know, teacher assisting, teacher shadowing, whatever you want to call it type thing. Um, I did something similar, but um, not with much success. And I think Rita had uh, Katie Walden have much more success. Um, And so Katie Walden, she got assigned to work with a kindergarten class. She got assigned to work with a kindergarten class in uh, not just any kindergarten class but a kindergarten class with a student with a, a little guy um, he's a real guy he's a grown up guy now and uh, his name was eddie todd and eddie was a special little guy um, he was very sweet very tender-hearted and as part of um, how he had been made and what had been worked through Um, in his early years, he had this tremendous flood of frequency of seizures. He had seizure after seizure after seizure after seizure, and um, these seizures had been an issue, and I can't remember um, at one point if they did a a surgical intervention, but um, whatever the condition was, um, little Eddie Todd was a great guy who could do many things, but he needed help doing those things, and so um, this pleasant, friendly young guy, Um, he got to have a personal assistant who was Katie Walden. Um, At their introduction, Eddie was really excited. He met Katie. He liked Katie. She was there. They had a good thing going. When the time came for her to go after her first day, um, Eddie started to panic. He started to panic Uh, His heart got anxious, and this swelling uncertainty came up in him. Um, Eddie, it's going to be okay. Katie's going to go. She has other things that she has to do today. Um, But this isn't the last time you're going to see her. She's going to come back tomorrow, and she'll be here. Um, This is Katie Walden telling Eddie, I'm coming back tomorrow. I'm here for every time, same time each day. You'll see me again tomorrow. Um, He was sad. He had his doubts, uh, but he had to wait and see. There's really no way around it. Um, Couldn't get him in a time machine, bring him to tomorrow, um, show him, her walking in the classroom and him being happy about it. That just wasn't an option. I don't know why, but that wasn't an option. So the next day, Katie Walden walks in the room. Eddie Todd, overwhelmed with excitement, You came back, Katie Walden, you came back. And so this, you came back, Katie Walden, you came back, has been this thing of, um, it's celebratory. It's learning to trust in someone who is trustworthy. It's character that's there in the person that you've come to know that you didn't know before, that now you know the goodness. And we get that. Um, For Katie, now Rhoda, um the experience wasn't as celebratory, it wasn't as big of a deal. Um she knew she was going to go back. She knew, yeah, I got the same thing. I have to show up for the class and if I don't show up for the class, then I'm not going to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing and people are going to follow up with me and I need to be where I'm supposed to be and so I'll be there. But for Eddie, Eddie's got no clue. He's got no history, he doesn't know her character, he doesn't know her person. He doesn't know her promise but for Eddie, it became a new normal. After some point in the season, um, he didn't greet her every time with, you came back, Katie Walden, you came back. It was, oh, hi, which was good. And we hear Israel and their response to God here, and they've known him as covenant Lord for quite some time. Um, They've seen promises fulfilled. They know his character. It's been revealed. It's consistent. And while they don't, live in the reality of his promises or character i think it's his personhood that they've not known and drawn to and come to and trusted Um, we see in verse 13 the response of what having heard his promise and character when it's perceived even by the heavens the earth the mountains they rejoice they rejoice because god's goodness towards his people is understood It's not lost on the mountains. It's not lost on the heavens. It's not lost on the earth. His word is a good comfort. It is a good comfort that with certainty will show up. But for God's people, for Israel, they don't have ears. They don't have ears to rejoice at his word a promise. Their response is something entirely different. Verse 14, he says, But Zion, the ruined city of the Lord, says, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And they don't get it. They don't get that the word of their God is just as good as seeing it fulfilled. This is the IOU. Um, I've mentioned before, but the IOU is only as good as the person giving the IOU. And God is giving Israel this covenantal stamp of I will do. But God's gracious to them. He's gracious to them, and he gives them good assurance. He says, you don't know what I speak to you, but here, let me help you understand. Verse 15, he speaks this. He says, you know that thing about um, a new mom and a mom who's nursing her child? You think she doesn't have compassion on her child? Of course she has compassion on her child, on the son of her womb. Yahweh's pointing to the thing that they know, within their people the bond between the mother and a child in that it's intimate and it's incredible and there's an intermingledness Um, from the point of feeling the kid kick and move and playing soccer doing all the stuff that it does when it's in the womb the mom bonds with that child and the depth of that bond only grows and I have um, no commitment no agenda in promoting breastfeeding but being spoken of here Israel they're pre-formula there's there's no bottles there's no alternatives here but God is speaking here of the nourishing and caring relationship between the nursing mom and her child the child as a nursing child it's got one source one source of being provided for and that's being nourished being fed by the mom and as the mom's body as she's apart from her child her body will not let her forget her child if she goes too long without giving nourishment, she feels pain. She feels discomfort. She feels pressure. Um, and it's a pain to drive her back to care and nourish and provide for her child. It's so great um, that it's, it's a must-address issue. That the need for life of the child and the need to nourish from the mother come together so that the two are drawn together. What Yahweh is saying to Israel is that it pains him. It pains him for his people, the people of his possession, to be in exile. It pains him to be separated from the house of worship that he's established. It pains him to not be in intimate fellowship with them. The place where his dwelling was with them, that has been temple-robbed, and so, who's in the greater pain here? Is it Israel or is it their covenant God? For them and for him, the two have to be brought back together because he's bound himself to them and is enduring the loss of intimacy between them and himself. What has he done to show them that he's not forgotten them? Is he willing to say something even now? Verse 16. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Um, This is something, uh, a couple weeks ago, Violet and I were talking, and um, she had a pink balloon, and uh, she had a pink balloon that broke, and then she was sad about the pink balloon that broke, and I said to her, it's okay, I have a backup pink balloon. I have a backup pink balloon in my desk drawer in my office and I will bring you a pink balloon. And so I went to my office, and I did whatever I needed to do there, and then I went back home, and I had forgotten the pink balloon. And she said, did you bring me my pink balloon? And I said, no, I forgot, I'm sorry. I will bring you your pink balloon. And so then I went to the office again, and I I can't remember what it was, but I did what I needed to do, and then I made it home, and she said, Dad, did you remember the pink balloon? And I said, no, I forgot the pink balloon. Violet, let's go. Right now, I'm gonna write on my hand, I'm gonna write pink balloon for violet. See look, I wrote it on my hand, and now when I go, and I brought the whole bag of balloons, and I was like, you can pick out this pink one and whatever colors you want. Um, And so there's this, I wrote it on my hand, and I didn't go get a tattoo. I didn't get a tattoo that said pink balloon for violet. Um, I think I wrote it maybe with like a permanent marker pen. But I didn't, I didn't imprint it into me. Um, I didn't ink it intermingling in my skin. What's being spoken here, what Yahweh speaks to his people is he says, I have engraved you. I have engraved you. I didn't go get an engraving. Um, I didn't go to somebody else and they did the marking for me. He says, I have engraved you myself. I, knowing your name, have written you. I have cut. I have marked. I will bear you. Bear your name in a way that whatever I do, whatever my task is, whatever my hand gets put towards, it will be with a remembrance of you because my hands are marked with you from marks that I have made myself of your name. Your walls will be built. Zion will be restored. It will be a place of glory again. What was overtaken, I will make right. He's given himself a daily reminder every hour, every minute, every moment. It's a guarantee that says, this reverse work will be done. Verse 17 begins this movement. We see the builders, they're accomplishing their work. He says, with great haste, the land is set free from the presence of the oppressors. So this is the the multiple waves of God's restoration. He brings his people back. He sends the occupied people out. False inhabitants leave, true inhabitants are restored. Babylon that possessed you will free from you. What's more, the nations are going to watch this thing. This isn't going to be a thing that happens in the private eye. The nations are going to watch, and they're going to submit themselves to me through you. And you're going to bear their glory as they give me glory. Verses 18 through 21, the Lord calls for his people to lift up their eyes to watch as they see him do this new thing. As their enemies have gone out, now the nations, the nations and their inhabitants will overfill the barren land. Um, We know what it is to be, to feel cramped. We know what it is to feel God growing something and feeling um, we're too big for what we have going on right now. Um, The reality that even We had our high school, Sunday school meeting in my office. And then we grew to a size of, um, yeah, we can't really meet in here anymore. We have too many people. we got to go somewhere else. And they are feeling, Israel is feeling the growing pains of having left their home. And when they get back, they're doubled, they're tripled, they're quadrupled in size. And they're like, we don't have the infrastructure for what God is doing. Where did these people come from? They think about the season of exile... And they say we were in a place of barrenness how did we get to this place of fruitfulness he says to them the nations will flood your city they will overwhelm your infrastructure you're going to be bursting at the seams your enemies are going to be a distant memory and you're not going to remember how you got to this place of feasting because all you saw were years of famine so remember um the manner in which the Babylonian people treated Israel the manner in which the Babylonian people treated Israel is um, we get a snapshot of that through Daniel's story what do they do? what do they want to do to mess up Israel? they say let's take the best, the best and the brightest the most promising um, those without blemish let's get the cream of the crop best of Israel and let's take them let's pull them away And let's put them in Babylon. We'll make them really, we'll teach them all the Babylonian stories and the language. And we'll absorb them. And we'll just leave the crummy people, the kind of bottom-rung Israelites, we'll leave them to Israel. Verses 22 and 23, what God is bringing to them is not bottom-rung type of people. Yahweh says, from the households of kings and queens... Will come to them an inheritance of nobility, the people of the best kind, the people of high stock. He says, um, those of foster kings, and the daughters of queens, the queens being their nursing mothers. That's the provision. That's the type of people that God is going to bring. Is He's restoring their honor, and He's restoring their honor as people voluntarily give up their honor that they would otherwise be due in their nobility. He says the symbolic kind of gross thing of the kings of the nations. He says, they will lick the dust of your feet. I think that's a pretty clear humbling image of um, they're going to come, they're going to give over their kids, and then they're going to lick your foot. That's gross. But it's this ultimate submission, ultimate acknowledging of rule and honor. And then we hear verses 24 through 26. We see the strength of the nations overwhelming, being overwhelmed by the strength of the Lord, Captives set free, children rescued, and the Lord speaks here of military siege. Um, Siege of a people shut up and without hope, trapped inside their own walls. Um, People who can't get on the run. They've got nowhere to go, nowhere to turn, except they can devour themselves. Their people can eat their people. Their people can drink, but only by drinking each other's blood. It's a violent image, um, but it's an image of despair and not having any option. That they've been trapped with no place to go. That's what God is doing to his enemies, the enemies of his people. The end goal on all of this is being that God is going to be put on display. Not just a God to himself, but as the God of this people, the God of this people who reigns and rules in and through them and over him as, over them as his people, he says, he is the Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The power of God is at work in the people of God for the purpose of God. That is what he's saying he is doing and will do. And what he calls on them to do in this is to wait. To wait and to watch as he does his work. Um, Waiting and watching are something that don't come naturally. Um, Waiting and watching, um, they're counterintuitive if we have any other option. Waiting, uh, we doubt because we don't want to wait. We want to do something now, and we want to see something work out now. Um, I had a, uh, a high school teacher, and I can't remember her name. Um, it was anatomy physiology class, and she she told a story about um, the injury that came to her husband. And her husband um, was a guy who he had come and visited the class, and we we just knew him as a normal guy. Couldn't tell anything had happened to him. Um, he would walk around, you know, no no issues, and. The thing that we knew about her husband is that um, he rode a motorcycle. And it was not just any motorcycle, but it was this bright yellow banana motorcycle. And he had um, this bright banana yellow motorcycle, um, which is like, you know, the high visibility thing. And that was like his thing, was he was the motorcycle guy. And at one point, um, he had turning through an intersection, gotten hit by someone running the light thrown further down into the median and then run over again by the same person it was it was like a like frustrating really and then really and then really you know and um so he had been driven over not only hit and thrown and then driven over um in the way that he waited really really mattered um I can't remember what the exact situation was, but it was um, the first people that showed up to him. He's laying there in the grass. The first people that showed up to him, and they said, um, trying to get his attention, trying to get him to engage, trying to get him to respond. And he says, hang on, I know what I'm doing. I know I have massive injuries right now. And the thing I need to give attention to, is slowing down my heart rate and being calm. There is, that's what I, you can do whatever you need to do and I'm going to wait. Um, That is not passive waiting. That is intentional, calculated, poised, postured waiting. That is waiting for a certain goal, waiting for a confident outcome, waiting with purpose and intent. It turns out he had multiple crushed bones in his legs, um, had significant bleeding happening. If he would have just, ah, i got to go, what am I going to do, panic and go all crazy, his heart would have started pushing stuff everywhere. Um, His damage would have been amplified. He had gone from a situation when they took him in and they said, you know, we're sorry to tell you this news, but, you know, Given the damage that your legs have incurred, you're never gonna walk again, and you're most certainly never gonna run again. Um, And he was the type of patient and waiting person where he calmly waited a day at a time, waited through doing what he needed to do every day until doing what he needed to do, he walked. And doing what he needed to do, he ran. And I know that's not always the case, Um, but there's something particular about him in that situation that speaks to what God is saying about what he hopes and wants for their people. Is Their waiting is not going to be a waiting of shame, not a waiting of disappointment. Um, their waiting is going to be this waiting like a fisherman who the line is cast and the hand is on the rod and they're waiting for the moment to set the hook. They're not asleep at the wheel. Their waiting is the The sprinter on the starting block who's focused, who's in position, who's waiting for the starting gun to fire, and is going to fly into action. Their waiting is even, the waiting that occurs, even though it's just a moment, um, I still think it's a beautiful picture, the waiting of a child who has leapt from the edge of the pool, who has leapt from the edge of the pool and is in midair midair, flying towards whoever they've trusted to say, I'm going to wait and fly through the air towards you joyfully, expectantly, that you're going to be there and you're going to catch me. That's the type of waiting that God is calling his people to. This past week, um, we were a people who waited and watched, waited and watched the outcome of a lot of different elections. Uh, we waited Hopefully, knowing that America is not the national equivalent of God's people, that the promises given to Israel are not promises imposed on America, but God's covenant people are those who Jesus Christ is king over, his church of every tribe and nation. We waited knowing that whichever of our um, broad scope, personal agenda, candidates would be appointed to the position of presidential honor Um, we waited knowing that there was at least one or both that we didn't want to see um, them receive honor we didn't want to receive we didn't want to see them receive the honor that's due to them Um, we were waiting with expectations of moral consequence in the line and we continue to face and wait and deal with the outpouring of Tensions and hostility, cries of racism and sexism and nationalism and ethnocentrism. And we would be good to be reminded um, that as God's people in this world, we are those who are exiles and aliens and foreigners and ambassadors of His inbreaking kingdom, that we can wait and give honor to whom honor is due. That his kingdom is not a kingdom of nationality or ethnicity or gender but is bound to the hope of how we wait for our savior how we wait for our savior who is now at work not as sitting on our hands but waiting expectantly waiting as redemptive agents redemptive tomorrow redemptive now peacemaking and peacekeeping hostility absorbing Forgiveness granting and humility bearing. And I say this to myself as much as I say it to you. It matters how we wait. We wait on the God whose grace is sufficient for us. We wait on Emmanuel, God with us. We wait on the God who has been God from the beginning. Who is indeed the risen one from the grave. We wait and we don't cry out, God, show me something good right now by my standards. We don't wait saying, where is God's goodness? Being a people who have forgotten, forgotten, thinking that he's possibly forsaken or forgotten us. Because we have the display of justice and mercy, truth and love that his own son became the forsaken one that we would never cry out as Israel, our God has forsaken us. That we would know that he had been cast out so that we would belong. That as Yahweh engraved the names of his people on his hands, our Savior bears marks of love for us on his hands, on his feet, on his head, from his side. There's a promise in Isaiah. There's a hope in Isaiah of God's covenantal care for his people, which is seen in its fulfillment in Jesus. Um, This bride adorned. It's great to think of Israel being adorned with the beauty of the nations and tribute and honor given to them, but that is so small compared to the righteousness of Christ that is placed on his bride. That we would find ourselves not turning against each other as a people, not devouring as God's enemies do, but find ourselves feasting on Him who is good food and good drink. He says to us, Eat my flesh, drink my blood, feast on me as your sustaining life. We, as God's people, were often confused, we often doubt. Often frustrated, but we have crystal clarity on the good promises made to us on the character of our triune God and his person as he's shown himself throughout scripture, throughout time, throughout the display of his son. Let us go to him in prayer that he would grow in us a submission towards him and that we would sing with gladness. Father, we pray that you would make us the people that we would join you in being part of your making us the people that you would have us be. Um, Father, that we would exalt with song and sing of your gladness. That we would join in the praise of the mountain, of the earth, of the heavens. Father, that we would not be silent. Father, we pray that you would instill in us a growing confidence and knowledge of your saving work, of your character, of your goodness, of your providing now, uh, even as we wait. Father, that we would wait with knowing your care, your love, your guidance for us. We ask this in Jesus. Amen.